0: Good morning. Uh, I'm John Podesta. I'm the president of the Center for American Progress. I want to Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, the center has just uh, hosted a meeting with policy network uh, involving uh, representatives from, t- I think, 10 countries, right, Gene, uh, that uh, uh, through a day of meetings to discuss the problems of globalization, the uh, economic effects, the effect on working people around the globe, uh, and how we're going to make uh, globalization uh, work uh, in, a, in a just and equitable way. Uh, and we had an excellent, uh, I think, day of discussion and an a, and an evening of discussion. And so we're happy to have a public event uh, this morning to discuss globalization, growth, and social equity from an Amer- from American and European perspectives. Uh, we are going to be joined by John Hutton, and who uh, has a meeting, uh, I think, over at the White House this morning. And when we do so, we'll have three uh, sitting cabinet mem uh, members three has-beens and one rising star, and you could try to figure out who, who's who uh, in, that, in that crowd. Uh, I can't actually think of an issue that is more urgent from a policy perspective and challenging from a political perspective uh, than getting globalization right. Uh, we celebrate the fact that millions of people have been lifted out of poverty through the engines of economic growth. I think we're gonna come pretty close uh, to meeting the Millennium Development Goals, poverty reduction goal, just with the number of people being taken out of poverty in China and India alone, uh, whether that uh, that poverty reduction is being spread across the globe is a somewhat different matter. But with this uh, growth uh, arises many problems: stra- straining uh, urban infrastructure, the degradation of the environment, acceleration of global warming, uh, and a growing income inequality. Uh, the challenge against this backdrop of unfettered growth and un time uh, and ultimate the challenge of uh, uh against this backdrop of unfettered growth is ultimately building i think a vibrant middle class and that was really what the discussions were about uh yesterday and so securing sustainable long-term and fair economic growth as the world economy grows so does ex- anxiety uh, about where the global economy is going we're seeing a growing gap uh in uh between rich and poor in many countries including uh in the united states and a growing gap uh between wealthy Uh, and poor countries, uh, can we pursue a path of more equitable growth and what interventions are necessary? That's really what uh, this panel is uh, going to discuss. Uh, We begin, I think, from the premise that open markets offer a tremendous opportunity to grow economies, generate jobs, and improve the quality of life of people uh, around the world. Uh, As you know, the world economy has grown faster in the past five years than any point in the past three decades. In fact, it's grown faster in any, than in any five-year period in recorded history, I believe. Uh, this growth has created a global marketplace that gives cor- both corporations and individuals astonishingly new ways to do business. Uh, advances in technology allow us to trade more goods and services than ever before. And as technology continues to improve, the notion of a tradable good continues to shift. But uh, as the world economy grows, so does anxiety. We feel that here in the United States, and I think our European colleagues uh, feel, feel it in their countries as well. Uh, according to the ILO, in 2004, world output increased by nearly $4 trillion, yet global employment grew by only 1.7 percent. The United States uh, hasn't been immune to the downside of globalization. Over the past six years, the number of unemployed in this country has gone up by, near, by 5 million. Uh, We, one in five children uh, in America live in poverty. That's twice the OECD average. Uh, The phenomena of offshoring as, uh, added to tremendous anxiety into our service sector which is traditionally felt sheltered from competition abroad. We had a presentation by Larry Katz yesterday that discussed the hollowing out really of the middle of uh, of workers in, in the economy. Uh, the picture in Europe raises uh, I think some equal challenges particularly with respect to unemployment. Uh, the European Union average unemployment rate was 6.9%. One in every six Europeans uh, is living below national poverty thresholds. 10% of people are in households where nobody holds a job, uh, so globalization with its benefits and challenges is a reality, the question is, can we find ways to make it a positive force at home and around the globe? Uh, today's panels will uh, today's panel will examine how countries our de- respective countries are addressing these challenges and see if we can find some common ground. Let me just tell you uh, a bit about our panelists as we get started. Uh, Karen Kornblue is the author of Families Valued, Published in Democracy: A Journal of Ideas. It was, that article was dubbed by columnist David Brooks as one of the most notable magazine articles of 2006. Congratulations. Uh, she's also the Senate policy director for U.S. Senator Barack Obama. She's here on her own behalf and not on behalf of Senator Obama this morning. Uh, previously, she founded the New America Foundation's Work and Family Program where she argued for a modernized social contract for the global economy in numerous publications. Uh, Linda uh, Lanziolata, is Italian Minister of Regional Affairs and Local Autonomy. In previous roles directing the Budget Commission and as Council Member of the City of Rome, she implemented measures to contain legislative costs and increase transparency and accountability at both regional and national levels. Uh, In Italy, as in America, it's the progressive parties that seem to be on the side of fiscal discipline, I have to note. Um, Before being appointed uh, as Minister for Regional Affairs and Autonomous Provinces, she spent five years as a professor of public management at the University of Rome. Gene Sperling uh, is well known to most of you. as a senior fellow for economic policy at the Center for American Progress. Previously, Mr. Sperling served as the National Economic Advisor to President Clinton from 1997 to 2001 uh, and for uh, the Deputy National Economic Advisor from 1993 to 1997. Uh, his book, The Pro-Growth Progressive and Economic Strategy for Shared Prosperity, has, continues to rank on the bestseller list and his recent... Uh, <laughs> His recent article, "Rising Tide Economics," appears in the September issue of *Democracy* of *Journal of Ideas*. I think Kenny Bears here, and we're uh, we're definitely plugging the *Democracy* journal. I think um, James per- per- uh, Purnell is the Secretary of State for Culture, Media, and Sport. Uh, prior to serving in the position, he was Minister for Pensions. In that capacity, he advocated a bold domestic agenda, which I hope we get to, of increasing retirement savings through personal savings accounts, something that's quite controversial here. Uh, James has been a Labor Member of Parliament from uh, Stalybridge and Hyde since 2001. And finally, Bob Rubin served as assistant to the president for economic policy, uh, created and directed the new uh, National Economic Council in 1993, uh, and then was confirmed as the 70th secretary of the treasury. Uh, Secretary Rubin is currently a director and chairman of the executive committee of Citicorp, as well as the founder of the Hamilton Project. I mentioned that we will will be joined by John Hutton, who was appointed secretary of state for the Department of Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform uh, in June of this year. He was previously secretary of state for work and pensions. Uh, John entered the cabinet as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster in May 2005. He was previously Minister of State with responsibility for social care at the Department of Health in uh, 1999 and took uh, over responsibility for health in June uh, 2001. So please uh, welcome all of our panelists. Bob, I was going to start with John, but he 's not here, so I think i 'll start with you um, you <laughs> you uh, you came to a cap sponsored event um, uh, uh, earlier this summer and you and you said something that that caught my ear, which was that uh, competitive economic conditions prevailing uh, in the global economy are perhaps quote the greatest change in the global economy and global competitive conditions since the emergence of the United States over a hundred years ago. Uh, you said I would argue, perhaps even since the industrial uh, revolution began. Um, uh, could you elaborate a little bit to get us started on what you think those competitive forces are, and whether America or Europe are better uh, able today uh, to to uh, meet those challenges of, of of competition in the global economy?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question, John. I think if you take a look at technology, you take a look at global integration, although there's now the the threat of a a backlash against that. You take a look at the the movement of of market-based economics pretty much around the globe, Uh, effective productivity policies in China, India, and a a number of other emerging market countries put all together, John, and you see China and India both emerging as these enormous economic forces, Uh, obviously large markets potentially, but also right, most immediately competitive forces I saw a study recently that said that on, on some reasonable basis of projection, that both those countries, China and India, would be two of the top four economies in the world by 2050. That would be an unimaginable 15 years. Put it all together, John, and then you also take the enormous wealth transfer to the oil-producing countries and to the Asian countries with large surpluses. I think that you do have a, a, a transformation of historic importance going on in the global economy, and I think it probably is. The, I said. Since, <laughs> the greatest in the, in the last, uh, since they've emerged in the United States, but I actually do think it's probably the greatest industrial the Western Revolution. And everything I've said is well known to all of us, but I l- live in a world of, of business and I spend a reasonable amount of time with policy people. I think very, very, very few people have internalized just how significant that is. I think the realities of the global economy are changing as we sit here. And I think, John, if you're going to make effective policy decisions or effective business or investment decisions, that has to very importantly shape what you do. In terms of the US and, and, and Europe. I think the US is actually very well positioned in many ways. We're going to be a smaller part of the global economy, but I think we could have a robust economy. We have an historic embrace of change where we, we're willing to, we have a, a cultural willingness to take risk. We have flexible labor markets. We have enormous uh, critical mass. So I, I think we're well positioned. I think the problem, John, is that we also face enormous numbers of challenges. And uh, we were talking about it a little bit last night. Uh, we, have, we have fiscal issues. We have an education system that is far from what it needs to be, infrastructure, basic research, energy policy, healthcare so much. And all these things are not only difficult substantively, they are very difficult politically. And I think that if we're going to realize the potential, I really do think we have, I think we've got to meet a lot of, I think our political system has to function one heck of a lot better than it's functioning today. And if it doesn't, then I think we could have serious difficulty. Europe, Europe, I don't quite know how to think about Europe. It, it doesn't seem <laughs> to be as robust as maybe one could think it could be. So I don't know, I I, I think of two issues around Europe. One, this is the US with all of its problems and, and the pluses and minuses that come from this, is really a very dynamic culture. I don't know whether Europe has that same kind of dynamism that you'd have to have if you're going to be successful in, in this new world, and secondly, the U.S. is a continental country with its large population, critical mass, and all the rest. I think there is a question about whether the politics of Europe are coming together, as had been envisioned over the last few decades, or whether that's kind of stalled. And I think they're both quite relevant.
0: Well, maybe I'll uh, let uh, James reply from a European perspective on uh, really to maybe to the latter question, which is from the vantage point. I won't ask you to speak for all of uh, all of Europe, but maybe you uh, might speak for for uh, from the perspective of the United Kingdom and if you have some reflections on on uh, the other European economies, uh, what's your sense of of, of uh, how the, how Europe is positioned vis-a-vis the United States to compete in, in the global economy
2: Well, I think it's um, a very interesting moment in, in European policy with uh, Sarkozy Merkel Gordon Brown um, all coming in relatively uh, recently, and uh, certainly speaking from the, the United Kingdom's point of view, a uh, an approach to globalisation which is open and enthusiastic, which thinks that we've done um, done well out of it. And I think what uh, we certainly feel in the United Kingdom is that the the arguments that we've been making for our version of the European model, which is uh, competitive, flexible markets, an open market uh, economy internationally, combined with um, uh, an effective welfare state is actually a good way to uh, uh, to face up to globalization because it gives people the courage and the optimism to believe that there is something uh, in it for uh, for British workers, for European workers, but that there will also be an effective welfare state there to protect people from some of the uh, volatility which comes from uh, from globalization. And I would say that with in some ways, if you look at what Europe has done over the last uh, twenty years, the massive enlargement, the creation of the european uh, single currency, the integration of Eastern and West Germany, the integration of uh, Eastern European states into into Europe in arguably one of the most extraordinary democratic changes seen in a very, very quick period of time that any democratic bloc has ever ever seen, I would actually say you can argue that uh, there's a there's a very significant amount on the positive side of the the ledger and that the arguments about the need to be open to globalization and the need for reform are now ones which you could say are more in the ascendant than they have been for a very long time within the European Union.
0: Uh, Linda, l- let me turn to you first. I I would just notice an Italian American. You know, <laughs> he said Brown, Sarkozy, and Merkel. He didn't yes, mention Prodi. Yes, so well, I'll, I'll be offended you on your behalf. <laughs> <is not laughs> <exact>. But <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you uh, to reflect from the from the Italian from the Italian perspective? Uh, Has globalization been good for the economy? Uh, Has it been equitable in terms of its distribution across uh, the Italian workforce? And how would you, maybe a little bit, how would you contrast the policies of the current government to the the Berlusconi government with respect to globalization?
3: But, you know, in Europe, and uh, um, especially in continental Europe and in Italy, growth is the priority. We have a very slow very low uh, rate of growth, so uh, we need huge reforms of uh, welfare system, uh, market labour, welfare system, uh, education, um, liberalisation of market, uh, which creates uh, uh, fears and uh, strong resistances. Because uh, in uh, Europe, uh, in continental Europe, we have a very different situation from Swedish. We we listened yesterday, unions in uh, um, uh, Sweden are uh, an innovation factor. And uh, uh, in continental Europe, uh, uh, unions are a conservative factor. So uh, progressive governance uh, has to face uh, deep changes to... Uh, push growth. But uh, if you um, look at service, uh, the globalization perception is generally negative by citizens. So we have to ensure citizens uh, and do, to convince that change is in favor of uh, popular classes or weaker of poorer. And this is the... Um, uh, the point which has weakened, I see, I, I feel, the progressive uh, policies uh, in Europe. Uh, why conservative wins, I think, in France uh, is the capacity to uh, make a change. Uh, progressive politics uh, in Italy, progressive politics in uh, some way in Germany didn't show to be able to um, establish innovation, and uh, the, the first uh, task of leadership, of progressive leadership, is to um, uh, gain support to change, because if we, we don't make deep reforms of liberal market and of welfare system, we will lose. Uh, and i let me say that from this point of view what it's happening in italy and generally in many uh, states of europe is a um, most important role of uh, local uh, governments because local governments uh, uh, are going to create a new welfare model closer to citizens uh, more able to give tailor-made answers to the risk of globalization, new form of protection, which balance the uncertainty of a flexible job, of a... um, Uh, a a, a low wages. And uh, uh, this makes um, uh, a a situation where um, governments at regional and at local level uh, get, uh, they they become the, the point of reference of economic uh, local system, which are creating uh, a balance to globalization and the perception of uh, a higher capacity of institution to face globalization, which at national levels seem to be uh, impossible to to, to manage. And the other point, which I would like to uh, stress, is the Urgence uh, to make mul- um, multilateral institution, uh, supranational institution, more efficiency because the perception is that. Uh, uh, great uh, phenomena of globalization uh, are impossible to be managed at both at national and regional level, but that institutions are not able to face. Look at financial instability, immigration. Um, so we have to, I think, I think uh, intervene at. These two levels, international and local. This is the perception from our point of view.
0: Let me just uh, follow up for one second on the on the localism. In terms of growth patterns, uh, are there are the regions in Italy growing uh, at yes. about the same rate, yes. or
3: ha- have they diverged? Uh, there is a difference with, within north and south, but uh, regional policies are able to. Um, Uh, make value from the specificity. You know, uh, uh, northern regions are a focus on Central Europe, but uh, southern regions uh, uh, can uh, have a very high development uh, toward Mediterranean, toward North Africa. So the uh, regional policies uh, in terms of development uh, can become a, a key to uh, make more value from the differences, of, uh, which historical have been a, a, a negative factor.
0: Uh, Karen, let me get you into this. Uh, we blame a lot on globalization, uh, and 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 we celebrate globalization sometimes, but usually we just blame a lot on it. Uh, you've written a lot about the changes in American families. Um, that they face in the current economy and the pressures, financial pressures and and social pressures on American families. In your mind, do these challenges do they do they stem from? Are they exacerbated by globalization, or are there other major currents in the uh, in the culture and in the economy that are really putting pressure on on U.S. families today? Um,
4: it's it's really an interesting question. I think one of the issues that was that came out of yesterday's discussion is this. Um, almost cognitive dissonance, where um, in the U.S., the issue of the family is really on the sidelines, and we think of it as separate from globalization, whereas in Europe, it seems to be at the center of the discussion about how to remake the social contract, the welfare state, and how to respond, and it's a big mystery to me about why that is, and all I can think of is it's really, because here we think of it as a a cultural issue. Uh, Either it's a legacy of the 60s and women women wanting to have it all, and if they do, then it's their problem, Uh, Maybe there's some racial issues as well in the history of welfare in this country. Um, And so we talk about a culture of poverty. But if you do start to look at it from an economic point of view, which I think people are, and you see that the pressures on wages mean that women in many cases have had to go into the workplace and have had to work more hours. And actually, Jared Bernstein, uh, who works downstairs, did some work looking backwards and looking at two, a couple families, so the best-case scenario in terms of income for a family, and going backwards and saying, what if the mother had not been working? What would the income have been like? And if you look at the bottom quintile and the second quintile, the income would have fallen, and even in the middle would have just, you know, had an increase of 5% over the last uh, 20 years, which is a a remarkable break from the previous, the post-war era, where you know the family worked 40 hours a week the breadwinner was in the workplace and the fam just working that set number of hours the family continues to do better and better in this case this economy you have to keep throwing hours on the fire and so i think there's the cause uh, it's a i think globalization puts pressure on the family i think we're starting to see somebody once Reagan but I, I think we're starting to see economists people who look at poverty saying that focusing on the family is also a way of addressing some of the globalization issues that if you're interested in this gap, if you're interested in um, growth in human capital development to get growth, that you have to focus on the early years. James Heckman has done all this fabulous work on the University of Chicago saying the best use of a policy dollar would be spent in the early years, um, and that you, if you start to look at some of the results of this Perry Preschool Project and others, you see that putting emphasis on helping kids in the early years helps them throughout the rest of their lives. When you think of the early years and the pressure on a family uh, childcare can be as expensive as college. The families had no time to save. There's no loans available. One-seventh of low-income families that are eligible for childcare subsidies actually get them. So it's a really stressful time period, and yet, you know, the research is now showing it's an incredibly important time to invest. And and, and then to, I don't want to go on forever, but the other issue, of course, is the, the giving families time so that it's not just a question of sending them off to childcare. Every parent knows, and most people know intuitively, you need the parental time, and when parents are so stressed, when the economy is a 24-7 economy, it's extremely difficult to get that time, and so one of the things that the U.S. I think can learn from Europe is how to modify work hours, give people maternity, paid maternity leave, flexibility, and so on, Uh, Which Europe is light years ahead of us on, so that parents can spend time with their own kids.
0: We're not doing so well here on modifying work time, but (laughs) James wanted to jump in, and I might you. uh, We're joined by John Hutton, and please join us up here. And uh, uh, you wanted to jump in, and perhaps you would also you you might. uh, I I know you wanted to say something directly, but you might want to comment also on uh, the labor governments. Uh, challenge to try to cut the child poverty rate uh, in half and eliminate it by t- 2020 in that, in the context of Karen's comments.
2: Sure. Uh, in fact, John was the uh, the secretary of state for that, so he may want to just come in on, on, on that bit, but I'll give him two Catch minutes just breath. to collect his, his thoughts. I mean, I was very struck by what Karen uh, was, was saying, and it was very reminiscent, I think, of where the politics of families and children uh, were in 1997 in the UK, where we had a system of uh, family support which was way behind anything which existed in uh, the rest of Europe. And in fact, a lot of the developments which have happened since then can be traced to the Progressive Governance Network and the work that's been done between the various parties in, in the rest of Europe, in the UK and in, in the uh, the US. And we started from a position where most of the debate was about single parents and you know the worthiness of support for for single parents um the and where historically there had been a big gender gap in voting patterns between uh men and women in, in the UK so i think it's true to say that if only uh men had voted uh post 1945 the labour government the labour party would have been in power pretty much the whole time uh but women had voted disproportionately for the conservative party and between 1997 and 2005 there was a, a there's been a massive uh, transformation in the uh, support for families. Two things very much inspired by the Clinton administration, the introduction of the um, uh, Child Tax Credit and uh, based on the ITC, and Sure Start based on Head Start, and two things very much inspired from uh, the rest of Europe, uh, big extension of maternity and uh, paternity leave, introduction of paternity leave for the first time, and the right to request uh, flexible working if you have children, and now if you are caring for people other than than children. And the effect of all of that was that in 2005, the gender gap was reversed. So actually, two elections later, we had more women voting Labour than voting Conservative, and we only won in 2005 because of the votes of women. So the, the interesting thing is not, and the debate has now switched completely from one which was basically about stigmatizing single parents to one where both parties are now fighting over this agenda, Uh, us very much through the continued extension of these policies, the conservatives, by trying to make it a debate about marriage tax allowances. And I think that's actually, given the change in how much people value this, um, I think that's a debate we're fairly confident of of, of taking on. The interesting thing is, one final thing, people always said, look, in Sweden, in Scandinavia, we have introduced these uh, family support mechanisms. And it's now not just something about your social conscience. It's actually people value as part of their self self interest that they value so much the uh, family support that they have that actually that's a good reason for voting social democrat. And I would say that's exactly what's happened in the UK, but in a in a period of just of just eight years.
0: Uh, Gene, uh, you, you may want to just kind of follow on on that. But you, you you've written a lot about uh, reducing working anxi- worker anxiety uh, across the board from. Uh, issues that we've just been talking about with respect to uh, family policy, with respect to fair taxation, job retention, uh, retirement savings, health care. You might be an advisor to some president someday <laughs> uh, in the future. W- what tops the list? Where w- what uh, do we need to do all this at once? Does it, it doesn't need to be sequenced? What's your, what's your highest priority these, these days?
5: Uh, well, that's always the toughest. I, you know, what one thing I would say is that. I think when economists come in, they tend to talk about the changes in large sweeps, 30 years, uh, you know, and, and what's happened in the last 30 years. I, I think for, for us, for policymakers, it's very interesting, and I'll, I'll plug Democracy Journal again, too, because I talk about this, in there to look at the last decade. Because you really had something dramatic happen in the U.S. economy, which was productivity finally increased. And you really had a decade uh, which was really a tale of two cities. From about 95 to 2000, you had uh, productivity go up around 13%, uh, well over 2.5% a year. And the median family wage went up about the same amount. Not only did it go up, but all, tw- all five quintiles did. In that environment, John, I think that it was uh, a lot easier for, I think, progressives who believe in globalization to simply think that you could kind of push forward with dynamism and try to do more to try to help people who are being dislocated, et cetera. Now go to the second five years of the, where the new productivity numbers increase. It goes up 16% and family income goes down 2 to 3%. I mean, it's just a dramatic difference. And I think you have seen uh, a shift in anxiety. People say there's always been that, but I think it's very different now. Uh, I grew up in Michigan. Yes, there's always been anxiety in the manufacturing parts of our economy. Now you've got people across the service economy worried that they or someone they know, 61% think they or somebody who's very close to them's job is at risk. I think you have a. a dramatic, uh, uh, I think you do have a dramatic change. And I do think it puts a great challenge on us because at the same time, you can't get, you can't ignore these these globalization trends. And as Bob says, if you're not embracing it, if you're not having the most efficient supply chain, you're not going to be competitive. You're not going to seize the opportunities to sell them to China and India that will come eventually. On the other hand, you'll have no public support if you allow this type of uh, a pattern to, to happen. So, I mean, the reason why I tried to focus on Kennedy's line about a rising tide, lifting all boats, is I think people are more confident about the rising tide right now. I think where people are losing faith in the economy is whether it's going to lift all boats. And I think that is going to be the progressive challenge. I would say kind of a, a few things, which I'd say, you know, one, obviously big issue is trade. And I think there's been one side that said, let's just have a pause. I think we worry about the signal that that sends to the, to, the, to the world about US commitment to multilateralism. The other is business as usual. I think what you, could, what you may be seeing progressives or, or what I think you'd, I'd wanna say to, to, to the next president is that I think you want more of a stage progress test. You don't want to say it's all, business as usual or all on hold. And I think what you saw in Panama and Peru was that progressives when they saw there was enough progress in something like labor standards, they were willing to go forward. Uh, uh, And I think that's what you're going to see, is that kind of case-by-case-stage progress test. I think the second big challenge, John, is going to be that if we're really serious about anxiety, and and this goes to Mr. Clark said in our our, our panels yesterday, you have to have uh, uh, challenges that are appropriate. This notion of tweaking trade adjustment assistance, none of this is going to be very effective to larger uh, uh, issues. So if you want to to do something about larger anxiety, you've got to have pretty universal things, uh, like universal health care. I think you're going to have to have much more universal uh, kind of adjustment assistance that is not contingent on how you lost your job. I think the challenge for us as progressives is to have that kind of universality and be able to convince the American people that we are empowering them during that period. I like the way the Democratic candidates, all three of them, have tried to talk about healthcare more as empowering the individual as opposed to more bureaucratic solutions. I think you're going to need to do those same things um, in adjustment assistance. And I think then the third challenge for us is going to be uh, not to simply you know, I, mean, I, think, I think conservatives leave us a great opening right now because they're so stuck in the ideology of less government that they're almost incapable of responding to this anxiety. They have no solution. Uh, they have no alternative universal health care. They have no universal adjustment plan. So, uh, so they've left us the, the ability to seize the mantle of worrying about people's insecurity. The, the, the challenge for us. Is to be both rising, you know, both pro-growth and progressive. Is to not therefore just be the party of, you know, we don't want to be just the party or just the movement that's there for you when something bad happens to you in your life. I think we will lose people's sense of their upward aspirations. So I think if you think of a rising tide compact, you want to not only have the universal health care. You want to have, you know, what I call a universal 401k, something that's also telling people uh, we're, it's not just work versus wealth. We want you to have a chance to share in assets growing, in capital, in having a nest egg, uh, so that we're uh, uh, appealing to people's upward aspirations. And I think higher education really hits both because, on one hand, uh, you know, Larry Katz always says one of the great anxieties people have is of, of losing their job is not being able to help their kids get a higher education, Uh, yet that's good for them doing well in the global economy, uh, and yet at the same time, it can relieve anxiety. So I think if we think of a, so I guess what I would say is you need kind of a rising tide compact. You need to be able to say to people that, yes, we can't deal with all the dynamism, we have to embrace it, but when it comes to savings, when it comes to sending your child to college, when it comes to healthcare, we're gonna take a little bit of uncertainty off your life, a little bit of burden off the, Employers, and I think that is the type of message I think the, the next progressive can have better than the conservatives because we're not afraid to embrace, uh, uh, not afraid to embrace government
1: policy. Bob, sure. I agree with everything Jean said, with one caveat. I think we've got to, I think you got two problems, and you've got to make. I agree with you. You've got to get fine policies that enable the economy to grow. So there's. To share and then you have got to find some way so that we have we had in the last in the last five years of the, of the 90s. When you get to trade, there's this enormous focus on labor rights, and as you and I have discussed before, I've said to you we've discussed it. I think labor rights are terrific. If you can get labor conditions, I think that's terrific because then you can help promote broad distribution in the countries that you're entering agreements with. But the reality is that if a country has a relatively small percentage, if, if the GDP per capita is a relatively small percentage of ours, then you can have perfect labor agreements, and that wage environment is such that The best labor agreements in the world and and a a perfect collective bargaining regime, and I'm a deep believer in the importance of collective bargaining, isn't going to have a material effect on wage pressures in this country. And I think the negative in it, Gene, is I think we focus so much on the labor conditions, we take our energy away from what really can make a difference, which is a powerful domestic agenda, precisely what's been lacking in the last six years. And so I think there's a negative in the focus on labor rights, labor conditions, rather. Well, one of one, I think some people use a subterfuge for not wanting to move ahead on trade. But secondly, to the extent it takes our energy away from the domestic agenda, it takes it away from what we really need to do.
0: Okay, good. We have a conversation, I'm going to get
5: John in a second, but Gene and Linda have the comment. Um Bob and I don't disagree on a lot, so we should do it publicly when we can. Um, two things. I I agree with Bob that that should not be a distraction. In other words, uh, not only the labor standards, but but virtually no specific trade agreement changes the fundamental challenge we face from India and China. And, And the worst thing any of us can do, whether you're for trade or against trade, is to suggest that if you had your way, that it would somehow change the basic anxiety. These things we're talking about are going to exist. So I think it's responsible for people on either side to have the robust domestic agenda. The only thing I wanna say in terms of the labor standards is I do think one has to build an ethical case for how we engage in globalization. And and I agree with you, it's not gonna affect the wage standards as much, but I think you wanna be able to say to people in a certain way, we can't protect you from the fact that somebody in Africa is going to compete on lower wages. We're humanitarian people, we're progressive, we want the world to develop, and people who can do things much cheaper uh, should be able to compete, and we should be finding the higher value added things to compete at. But I also think it's very important to say to people that that you're not going to allow that increment of price competition that comes from things Americans think are abusive of human rights, such as abusive sweatshop, abusive child labor. So I do think that these things can go hand in hand. Just, just so Gene
1: doesn't, I, I don't disagree with that. Let me just say, I'm not in favor of abusive child labor. Okay. okay. Just just to, that just is, good. Just I, know I, I know how, right. Gene, I know I was, how I, Gene sometimes I was, about, I was about
0: to ask for a show of hands on whether people <laughs> yeah. thought he was or yeah, wasn't. I, I don't want to be <laughs> I don't I don't want want mischaracterized. To <laughs> yeah. It, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll uh, be no, I
3: was to um, <laughs> give a comment because uh, I agree on the point that conservatives are incapable to answer, to give answers. But. Uh, if there are no answer, the answer shall be protectionism and uh, even uh, racism. but uh, the other point is if the uh, task of progressive is a strong, powerful domestic agenda for competition, for competitive economy, and for support uh, and protection of uh, uh, citizens in globalization. So the, the, the key point, I think, uh, it, uh, the, the one was pointed up by... Uh, uh, Laura Tyson, if I, uh, I, um, I well remember, and then disappear, which is the uh, discussed uh, about the, the tax uh, issue, because fiscal policy, the tax policies, is one of uh, the 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 difference within progressive and conservative. So how to combine a strong agenda and uh, uh, very low uh, rate of taxation. This is one of the points we discuss in Europe, and especially in Italy, because we have also to reduce debt, so we have a, a, a number of, of problems, but the, the, the key issue in Italy is taxation, and uh, how this I am interested to, to put this point in the discussion.
0: Uh, well i'll let John react to that uh you 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 have to manage the trade portfolio in 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 the u k does is that easier to do as a result of uh particularly the stronger safety net that 's been developed and the programs that we 've had some discussion of uh as uh, 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 uh with respect to uh, providing the kind of uh supports and inputs that people have had on on the labor policy side uh or is this is the growing anxiety amongst uh, the uh, middle class workers in UK parallel what we see in the United States?
6: It does parallel.
0: I think he'll, he'll think about it.
6: Um, no, it it definitely does parallel those those concerns as well. I mean, look in the UK we have a historically a very strong foundation of universal entitlements, healthcare, education, welfare, and so on. Um, will those on their own be enough to sweep away any wider concerns about what's happening around? Globalisation, the shifting patterns of trade uh, that are affecting all of our nations. No, I think they are an essential precondition on which you can build. But uh, in Europe, where we see a very similar sort of pattern of universal entitlements, there is substantial concerns about the direction of economic change and, and what it means for all of us. My, my district in in the House of Commons is a shipbuilding town, and you know when I talk to my constituents, which I do regularly about globalisation. Um, they say to me, yeah, but this, this is nothing new. About this, we, globalization affected shipbuilding. Thirty, forty years ago, we used to build thousands and thousands of tons of big merchant ships in my constituency. Thirty years ago, that all went out to Japan and Korea. So, you know, this is not something that really people have been just looking at in the last couple of years and thinking, "Oh, what does this mean for me?" We've been living this for the last thirty, forty years. In fact, all of our economies have done it in in, in different ways and, and forms. But I, I think my, my take on on the trade spe- argument, and specifically, is this that. I mean, I've only been here twenty-four hours. So I'm not sure where I am actually, <laughs> um, but I tell you what: I am struck by is the sort of the, the very sort of now. Maybe it's it's you know a political thing, and I sh- maybe shouldn't get into that. Uh, try hard not to. But there's a very different perspective, I think, that's that's playing in all of this. We in in Europe, in the UK, see the very strong developmental agenda around the World Trade uh, Organization, round the Doha round. That does not I don't really see that reflected so much in the debate here, and I think this is a very important issue for progressives too. Now, yes, we've got to manage the domestic politics of how we reconcile our belief, as Jean was saying, very, very, very I think, eloquently about the, the long-term gain, the long-term benefits for our constituents from globalization. We progressives, we can't be the ideologues here. I mean, the, the right, I think, across the developed world are becoming much more dogmatic in their view about this. I think the center-left sh- should not be I love the rising tide, lifting all boats sort of analysis from from President Kennedy in the 60s. I think that is the quintessential progressive challenge today still, and I agree very strongly with with that, Gene. But I would like to see progressives here um, take that very strong developmental agenda forward in their analysis about the World Trade Round in particular, because I think the the potential is is huge there for our own economies. And yes, it's okay to be reflective and to think about our own material economic gain that we can get from this. Of course, we, we will always do that. But I generally do think with the World Trade Round, we've got a a, a double win for for progressives. We can help our local economies, our national domestic economies, develop and change and grow at the same time as benefit the world's poor. And that has got to be, I mean, look, that has got to be right at the top of the agenda, I think, for progressives as we think about our own domestic economic policies, but much more fundamentally about how we think about our our foreign economic policies, too. And this, this, you know, this is this is something we we can't shy away from um i brought a prop along with me uh I, you you've
0: uh, noted that the labor party should be the natural party of business uh in this morning's wall street journal uh the the top story is gop is loing, losing its grip on core business vote uh, uh when you said that uh, were you thinking about that from the perspective of that the labor party policies are better for growth or that uh, or that Business actually has a kind of the st- social dimension that binds together the uh, uh, agenda of you know what what's your perspective on on what w- labor particularly the party's relationship to business uh, in the UK and why they why business in the UK should support labor policy.
6: I think there's two ways I I would have a go at answering that question. I mean some of it reflects the the local domestic political scene in the UK. It's a natural tendency for oppositions you know the longer they're out of power. To basically to conduct their policies on the basis of just trying to accumulate as many third party endorsements, particularly from NGOs, non-government organizations, that they possibly can. And where that usually leads you into is a position where you've got four or five completely conflicting policies. Uh, And that is where basically, I I would argue very strongly, the British Conservative Party has ended up. Sometimes they look like they're actually the the arch regulators. They want to sort of require people who go to do their weekly shopping at the supermarkets to pay a fine, a levy, for for actually parking in in the car parks. Uh, they have this crazy idea, well, I think it's crazy because I'm a real chocolate fan, um, that if you eat chocolate, you know, we should develop a kind of chocolate trading scheme to, to parallel carbon trading. Chocolate is a bad thing, it leads to obesity, so we're going to have to have some extra way of making people stop eating chocolate. It's crazy. Um, people, look, the only insight, look, maybe I can, people will always want to eat chocolate. There is no particular economics about that, but it's reality. Um, so, some I think, John, of the the, the the changes in the political framework in the UK are to do with where the Tories have allowed the Conservatives have allowed themselves to be to be positioned. You know, weird people who who propose weird things. Now, <laughs> I'm very happy for them to get, carry on that way. That, but the, that's but ex, that's the gist <laughs> of, of it. Yeah. <laughs> about <laughs> the
0: Republican Party in the United
2: States.
6: I'm not getting drawn on that, obviously. Um, but the second thing I would say, and I think maybe maybe this is, I hope for progressives here, maybe more relevant. To, to the situation in the US. What we have found, what James and I have found in New Labour in the last 10, 15 years, is that the old politics in the UK was always that you had Labour on one side of the fence and you had the bosses on the other. And basically our politics was you know, the two screaming at each other. Now what has actually happened in the UK has been quite interesting in the last 15 years. That That is no longer basically where the dynamics are in, in British politics. It's okay to be in favor of profit and to want your companies to do well. And actually at the same time, to be concerned about poverty and the lack of opportunity and the poor quality of public services, you know I think there is a rich vein for progressives to tap here now it's not it's not easy, and it will depend on the national situation, obviously, but we have found that there is you know increasingly in the modern world and the modern economy much more affinity between the needs of business as traditionally defined and as the needs of labor as we on the centre left have traditionally defined ourselves. Um, And I think that opens up a tremendously exciting new opportunity in politics for progressives to, to, yes, to be the natural party of business, and I think that's where we should always try and find ourselves.
0: Uh, uh, Bob, actually, a two-parter. One is with respect to the Doha round. Uh, I saw no evidence that the U.S. business community made any attempt to build a constituency around the development agenda. Uh, in the Doha round, and a, do you think that's right? And you know, and w- was it a mistake not to? Uh, and secondly, do you think uh, what you, you follow uh, the, uh, the 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 labor-management relationship in the United States? What, what, what do you have any reflections upon the UAW-GM uh, deal with respect to what John just sort of put on the table?
1: Oh, let, let me go the second question first. Okay. I'll take the first question first, okay? Because that's easy. I think DOA was very important, John. And when it first came around, and I looked at it, and I thought, boy, this is something that really can make a difference. I live in the business world every day. I've never heard anybody talk about yeah. DOA. It has no business support, it has no business interest, and I, it probably wouldn't have happened anyway because of all the politics of trade in this country, but there was absolutely, you can always get business to coalesce, as you know from our days at Clinton, uh, to, around trade, there was no coalescence or interest in, and I would talk to people, I'd speak, say, see a lot of people sort of almost every day running big companies, and I would talk to them, I'd say, isn't Doe interesting? And they would say, you're a nice man, let's talk about something else. <laughs> so there, there was no interest in it whatsoever. I think that's correct. And I think it's too bad because I think it's actually very important. On the second one, I spoke to a friend of mine who was deeply involved in one of the large auto companies. He had a very interesting comment, John. He said this General Motors agreement with the UAW, he said was something new in, in, in union relations in in the United States, which is that it was both sides, the unions and the company, focusing on the importance of the health of the company as the avenue to profits for the company and to wages and job security for labor. I I mentioned John last night. I have a friend who runs one of the large medical centers in the United States, in New York. And he told me that up until about 10 years ago, they had a terribly fractious relationship with labor, which is terrible. About 10 years ago, when the hospital got in trouble, the medical center got in trouble, they started focusing on the health of the medical center, because if it didn't do well, nothing would do well. And he said the consequence has been that the health, they've had a terrific workforce relationship. The institution has done very well, the union members have done well. And it's really worked. And I think, John, that really could be a formula for the future for industrial relations country. We need to have collective bargaining. You know, Galbraith wrote about the countervailing power. If you don't have countervailing power, it's a tremendous detriment to some sort of reasonable allocation of of, of the benefits of growth. But I think it needs to take place in a way that also promotes the economy. And so I think this, if if that characterization of the GM contract is right, and this fellow told me about it, he's a very knowledgeable guy, I I think it really could be a, a new path forward
0: uh i want to actually come to the people who probably have the least power in the in the uh in in the workplace which are low wage women workers and and come back to uh Karen for for a second uh i'm i'm a lawyer so you'll forgive me for bringing a law review article uh, from the berkeley journal on employment and labor law by anna Leary. but uh she wrote a, a piece that notes uh, interestingly and traces the history of that uh, as over as women's overall workforce participation has increased, low-wage working women have become much less likely to have access to pregnancy and family leave than professional counterparts. And I'm wondering uh, whether you, in your work, whether you've reflected on that, and and what's what are the kind of inputs that could really make a difference with respect to giving uh, low-wage women uh access to those kind of uh work support so that they can s- uh, both raise their family and stay in the workforce.
4: Yeah, one thing we I didn't note before which is that um, President Clinton and all the people associated with him deserve a huge amount of credit for getting the Family Medical Leave Act through which meant that you couldn't be fired in this country for taking time off when you had a new child or a sick child um, or a sick family member but it only applies to companies over a certain size and so these low-wage women often work for smaller companies if you um, work below a certain number of hours if you work uh, if you haven't worked for the company for a set amount of time and this is the characteristic of low-wage women obviously um, uh, then it doesn't apply to you and of course it's there's no requirement that it be paid unlike in Europe and there's been very little movement on that front except in California where they have moved ahead with a payroll tax uh, to um, to cover it, and uh, there's been some you know looking at that in the Congress, but what you find is if you're a single mother, and you know a third of American children right now, which is an astonishing number. A third are being are, are in households with either one parent or no parent. Just you know when you think about the Moynihan report that raised all this ruckus talking about African American families having, I and mean, this is much higher, and um, if you think about that single mother who is working to support her family in a twenty, you know, let's say she's working at Walmart and they can change her schedule at a moment's notice, she can't afford childcare, and if she takes a day off because her child's sick, she loses her job. And Jody Hyman, who's sitting here, has done a lot of work looking at how far behind the U.S. is of countries all across the world in this respect. So I guess I, I would. Th- I was very interested in what Jean said. I thought it was fabulous. But you know, your emphasis on saving for retirement and on college, and I think that's very, very, very important. But I think if you don't focus in the very early stages uh, and you don't look at the pressure cooker that these low-income families are under, and you think that these are the people who are going to be our workers in the knowledge economy, these are going to be people who are going to be paying our Social Security. Uh, and we're, we're creating an impossible situation where they... The the family can't help them, and there's no alternative. And so I guess what I'm very struck by, because of course I agree that um, the domestic agenda has to be the response to globalization, Um, but one thing we progressives in the U.S. seem to be so cautious about is how aggressively we're going to put forward a new agenda as opposed to defending the existing programs that were put in place by FDR. Um, And I think we're so... The the conservative anti-government agenda has been so powerful and so compelling that I think we're very nervous to give them the slightest opening. And so we defend our programs to the hilt, but are very cautious about putting forward anything else for fear of being called big government or being on the side of bureaucracy. And I think if we could find a way to do it so we don't sound like we're raising taxes or just the friend of bureaucrats, but somehow that we're giving tools to families in a smart way, but I think we're going to have to earn that, you know, step by step. And I guess health insurance is where we're starting.
1: One second. I totally agree with that, Karen. One thing President Clinton once said, uh, well, he said a lot of things that struck me. But one, I remember we were telling something or other, and he said, the, the conservatives have sort of captured the prism through which government is seen. And that's wrong. <laughs> and somehow or other, progressives, have, or whoever you want to call them, have to get that back.
0: Well, that, that goes to the uh, point Linda raised earlier, too, which is around taxes which is the other prism they've, they've captured is that growth only comes uh, from reducing taxation on uh, investment and wealth and that taxation should be layered on uh, in, in an increasing, uh, in, at least in percentage terms increasingly, uh, on, on the cost of labor. And is that a strategy that's likely in your mind to produce uh, uh, the kind of workforce investments which will keep the economy competitive?
1: John, I I think, and and I've actually spent a fair bit of time on this, I think there is approximately zero evidence to suggest that if you increase rates back to where President Clinton had them, which is what I would do in the top two brackets right away, that it would have one iota of adverse effect on our economy. Gene will well remember, you remember, in 1993, when we put rates up on the top 1.2% of the taxpayers and the conservatives who opposed us said it was going to put the country into recession. Instead, we had the longest expansion in the country's history. And similarly, on capital gains taxes. Uh, I, I suspect there is a rate beyond which you wouldn't want to go, but there's. Uh, and again, I've. Spent, I think there's no evidence suggest that having moved them down from where they were to where they are is likely to have any beneficial effect on either investment or on savings. And so I think there's a lot of ideology, but I think there's no empirical. In fact, I think the empirical evidence also, got the other way.
0: John, what's your, what's your, in with respect to the UK? What's your reflection on on the relative balance? I know that some, to some extent, you've t- you've followed a. Uh, uh, a tax-cutting agenda with, res- with respect to uh, investment income, but
6: mm, better balance. Well, <laughs> well, I'm only allowed to talk about tax when I leave the UK. When I'm actually in the UK, I'm not allowed to say anything about it at all. That, um, that, that,
0: that's true in the US as well.
6: Yeah, I'm sure. Look, I've just got one or two observations to make, and I, I don't know what, what James thinks about this, John, but we, we learned the hard way, uh, that's all I would say, in our politics for 20 or 30 years. We were seen as the high-tax party. And by that, you know what people saw when we talked about higher income tax rates, that we were somehow against people succeeding, that the more you succeeded, the more you were going to sort of take your, your the gains of your your hard work away from you. and I think that is a very bad signal for for, for progressives to send now our taxation system we've tried very hard to make sure it's progressive. So, that clearly the more you earn, you, you pay a, 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 your fair share. But I think when it comes to income taxes, I think I, my, the only advice I would have or give to anyone is you, you've got to tread really carefully there. And I remember sort of 20 years ago when I was just a young, idealistic politician, sort of you know, knocking on the doors and trying to get people to vote for me. We then had a policy. James was too young. I'm not even sure he was born then when this was happening. Um, we had a policy that we would increase the taxes for those at the very top. And you might think that's a very progressive policy. Truth is, though, in, in this day and age what people hear when you talk about well we're going to tax the rich hey you're going to tax me uh, now the truth is we weren't but I couldn't I didn't meet anyone in that campaign who didn't think that we were proposing to raise their taxes and raising taxes generally on income is is really not a vote winner that's my only sort of observation as a politician so you tread carefully there um, I think business tax is more complicated clearly true um, but I think you look in the modern day and age I think the trick we've got to pull off it's basically how can we as progressives be the party of aspiration and opportunity in the way that Jean has said. We, we can't just be the guys you know, who go around clobbering the, the, you know, the, the people who've succeeded in their lives, because that's a terrible signal for us. But we've got to at the same time make sure that um, you know, people who, who, who are well off pay their fair share, and we will all have our own national strategies to, uh, to, to make sure we get that balance right. It's, it's not an easy thing to do.
0: Linda, you want to reflect on that from an Italian perspective?
3: two points. The first one is about women and uh, uh, in Europe and especially in Italy, we had the problem to increase the uh, rate of the participation of women uh, at labor market because it's very low and uh, there isn't convenience for women if married and with children uh, to, to work, because the, the cost of services for kids is too high. So we have to. Uh, this uh, creates two problems uh, low productivity and low rate of natality. So the, the, the for, for growth, we have to uh, establish new um, nursery public services for women and support at a uh, uh, local level. The second one, uh, the taxation uh the the progressive in Italy are perceived as the tax party. This is terrible <laughs> this is terrible we We lost uh in two thousand and one for this reason and we if we shall lose the next time is the for the same reason and uh, so we have to push. Uh, for the growth, open the market, reduce, cut, expen- uh, cut uh, public expenditure to improve um, new welfare state with public uh, uh, and private partnership. I don't see other uh, answer if we want combine uh, competitiveness and uh, new welfare. New welfare. Uh, so, I, I think that uh, this is one of the points of our agenda.
0: James, on how we become the growth and social equity parties.
5: <laughs> well, I, I, oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're my
2: guest. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say something very quickly, picking up on what Bob said about the prism, which is there's been a big battle for the prism in the UK. And one of the foundational changes of New Labour was Gordon Brown, selling a very difficult message in the 1990s about how we were not going to change one iota of the conservative overall fiscal envelope going into the 1997 election. And that was particularly difficult because actually they had set a uh, uh, a big deficit reduction package effectively because they'd overspent in the early 90s. So when we went into power, we inherited a set of tax plans which meant very significant cuts to public expenditure. So we, basically tried to get ourselves off being the tax party by saying, don't worry, we will spend as much as the Conservatives. In government, we've been able to grab that prism back to the point where the last two elections have been fought on investment versus cuts, and the Conservatives got themselves into a position whereby them promising to cut our programs actually ended up being a vote loser for them. Now, I think that's possible for two reasons. One is they had had such a hit to their economic competence, reputation for economic competence from uh, Black Wednesday and the exit from the ERM, that people just didn't trust them with the economy or tax uh, at all. But secondly, I think we have been very conscious in trying to make a successful argument for an enabling state rather than a big state. And that's why the agenda of public service reform has been so important, which is if people get a sense that it's actually about big state pouring money into bureaucracies, which isn't actually delivering anything for the individual, then that creates an opening on the the right. Gordon Brown and Tony Blair have always been very keen to fend that off by having public services which are personalized, where the individual has control, and where you genuinely get a sense that what the investment in the state is doing is helping people to have greater autonomy for themselves, rather than some big clobbering bureaucracy which is doing things to them.
5: I think it's very important that you have to lead with what it is that you want to do with your progressive agenda. And I think that that when you, therefore, go to having progressive taxation, it's not so much your lead point. It's a priorities issue. It's not a class warfare or a lead point. So, for example, I think this year you'll see a debate on uh, on universal health care. And the question is, you can go out and say, oh, we ought to simply restore. uh, You can make your lead point. We ought to restore the tax rates to the pre-Bush era. Uh, I don't think that's the right lead message. I think the right lead message is to say, here is a powerful uh, things that we can do, like universal health care, and then ask people what the what the priorities are and, and wouldn't it be worth asking the top 1% or 2% to sacrifice a little for something that would be very good. That said, I do think that the conservatives are risking, uh, in the sense that perhaps progressives lost touch with some more basic middle-class values, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I think President Clinton helped restore that, Tony Blair helped restore that. I think they're in danger right now. I think as they're, cu- and I think you saw this in the debate over the kind of carried interest issue, uh, which, is that, which is that Americans are upward, uh, they, they, they vote their upward aspirations, they, they want to not just have security but to do well. On the other hand, when you start seeing people uh, you, know, the, you know, when you start seeing somebody who is working for a hedge fund or a CEO uh, actually paying lower marginal rates than the people who are taking care of their children, teaching their kids in school, putting out their fires, I'm not sure that you don't kind of walk off a bit of a values uh, edge for them. And I think, that, I think that the key for us is to, kind, is to say we, we may have a winner-take-all economy. We don't need a winner-take-all tax system that kind of exacerbates it, where the hard work of average people is now uh, um, taxed more than the, than the wealth of the most well-off. I think the trap is not to get caught like your, your goal is to be anti-wealth. And that's why I think if, you, if part of your message is not just that you want to reward work, but you want to give that typical family a chance to have a nest egg, a chance to save, a chance to invest, maybe the chance to even make a bad you know, investment in a stock, um, I, I think you send a very different message. You're trying to have everybody be part of a wealth creating society as just being for work
0: and against wealth. So we can't have class warfare, but we could have class skirmishes once in a while. <laughs> I'm for <toward> to- that. <laughs> Karen uh uh James raised the uh, the notion of enabling state and our Norwegian colleague yesterday was talking about uh the the kinds of uh, social programs that you've discussed in in your work and your literature uh as really uh, in, uh investments in enabling the overall economy to thrive because Women are valued, they have the capacity to stay in the workforce that, and and, uh, complete, and compete and complete their careers, complete their education.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, for, for
0: those of you who don't know, Bob has a wife named Judy as well. <laughs> and,
5: and we also discussed strategically that, that it would be humanizing for to take a call in the middle of this. <laughs>
0: But I, I, I want we we hardly ever talk about uh, family medical leave in those kind of terms. They're social programs in the United States, rather than uh, core economic programs to uh, to essentially create a a, a more high-skilled, uh, high-wage uh, workforce that and improve uh, human capital. Is that is is that a mistake? Should we really take this approach of uh, that that James was discussing, and really kind of try to reframe uh, this work in that context.
4: Yes, <laughs> um, I mean I think it's much easier to make the argument on, in this country on the basis of the kids, since they're the innocent victims. And I think once you get into talking about mothers, you have this whole all these moral hazard issues that people start raising, which I think are red herrings. But still, they get raised, which is. You know, if you if you help a mother uh, too much, then maybe you're encouraging her to have children in, out of wedlock. Or, you know, people who don't like the idea of mothers working say you're encouraging her to go to work. Um, but, I, you know, um, I think the discussion yesterday should give us courage to make the argument that, you know, especially when you're going into this aging demographic situation, that you need all the uh, skilled labor you can get. And if women are being kept out of the workplace or you've got a situation where they're delaying... Um, childbearing or having fewer children than they want to have, um, you know, you've got to change that situation. And I, th- I, mean, I think we just get so caught up in these cultural issues and forget to look at them as, <laughs> as um, economic issues as well. I and mean, I think maybe that would be a breakthrough for us um, uh, in the UK. And I hesitate to speak about it because I'm sure I'm going to uh, get it all wrong. But But Tony Blair, from my understanding, when he did this right to request... Um, which is that you can uh, the EU has a directive that you should be able to make it easy for people to do part-time work. And in the UK, the way it's been implemented in part is that you have the ability to make a formal request to your employer that you want a part-time or flexible schedule. And your employer has to give it serious consideration and meet with you and talk about it. And you have to figure out how you're going to make it work. And if they can't make it work, then they can say no. And then there is a series of appeals and so on. And it's been from what I understand, extremely successful, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way he led into that was, or the way labor led into that was, from what I understand, a public education campaign, which I think was very, very interesting, with grant programs for early adopters and work consultancy, working with businesses. Um, so it's a really different approach, as opposed to just, um, uh, because, you know, these are complicated issues to think through. It's such a big change. As you said, we're still internalizing all the effects of the global economy. I think we really haven't internalized what's happening with the family. So I think doing that kind of public education and leading that way is a really interesting model. Do you want to comment or John? John's actually responsible for it. Just two thoughts.
6: We've had this legislation for several years now, and, and about 80% of requests to work flexibly are, are granted by employers. And I think the interesting thing we've found out about this, because one of the great tensions I think we face as progressives, trying to deal with some of these changes, what is our basic instinct? Often it is to regulate. It is to impose new labor standards and to to regulate employers. Now I'm not averse to to, to doing that when the circumstances are appropriate, but the right to request I think has struck a particularly useful balance between the need to maximize and, and to protect women from discrimination and exploitation in the workforce. But in a way which actually employers find suits their needs as well, and in fact most employers in Britain now consider requests outside of the statutory parameters of the flexible working. At the moment, it's if your if your youngest child is I think it's six. Or, or you're caring for a disabled adult, you've got the right to request for flexible working, but most employers now will, will look at flexible requests for, for workers from a whole range of different circumstances. So we've kept employers on board with this change. It has delivered really important gains for women in the workforce. I think looking after the family structure is one of the real challenges for aggressives, I think, as we deal with the challenge of globalization. You made the point, Karen, about maximizing the opportunity for women to work and skill women. is hugely important if we're going to remain competitive and so on. And I think maybe there's some thing in this, that this is a way that we can sort of satisfy our own concern for social justice and our passion for it in a regulatory format that doesn't now encumber employers with unmanageable um, and really bureaucratic and costly burdens which often only have the effect of dampening the opportunities or reduce, restricting them for women in the first place. And This is something we've got to take into account.
0: Uh, I'd like to ask James. just. To, I'd like to spend a minute on personal retirement. Uh, personal retirement accounts, part of the enabling agenda. Of course, here that's the third r- rail. Uh, it was the it was viewed as the Trojan horse for privatizing social security, getting rid of a direct benefit under social security. Uh, you've proposed it uh, and championed it over there, uh, but I wonder whether you might uh, talk about a what how the, how it's been received. But also, is it structured? to retain a defined benefit uh, program under the pension plan so that it doesn't hollow out uh, the the basic social security guarantee that's in the UK law.
2: Well, again, John was my uh, boss at the Department for Work and Pensions when we were doing this uh, uh, together, so we're turning slightly into Lauren Hardy here. But, um, I mean, the, the essential background to it is that the UK had a a real winners and losers pension system. So if you worked for a big company, you would normally have a good final salary scheme and uh, people who are retiring on those schemes now have got a good retirement income. But 40% of the workforce had pretty much no protection at all and was retiring on a a state pension system which by European standards was incredibly miserly. Uh, The Conservatives decided to uh, change that by having a very big stress on individual private saving. And I think one of the things which... It's very important to do when you're comparing uh, br- the British and the American system is to realize how much of the British system is based on what I think here would be described as privatized pension saving. So, you know, most people in the UK, are, in fact, everybody in the UK is expected to top up their state pension system through some private saving. The problem was that it was an area where actually expecting people to exercise that level of complicated choice just hasn't worked. And as uh, pro-free market progressives, that's been something which you know, we took quite a lot of convincing on the on the evidence of, but when you look at the evidence, it's completely um, incontrovertible, which is people just find making financial decisions of that kind about how much they should save, where they should put it, uh, what kind of annuity they should take. They just found it too, too difficult. And therefore, because they were so worried about where were they taking the best decision, they ended up taking no decision at all. And so we had a, a big gap in the UK uh, market, and Tony Blair recognized that there was therefore going to be a need to move towards a much more interventionist system. And to achieve that, the process by which it was achieved, actually, to pick up on the point that you were just making, Karen, was quite interesting, which is there was a a national commission set up with an ex-head of the Employers' Federation, a very good trade unionist, and uh, a very well-respected academic. Uh, There was then a national debate around the very difficult questions around raising the state retirement age, around compulsion on employers. And around um, an increased saving by individuals and what that debate was w- took uh, achieved was it made the taboos non-taboo so the first time that the idea of raising the retirement age was floated it was work till you drop all on the front page of the papers the second time it was on page three of the papers and it kind of gradually moved back to the point where they were able to internalize within the what was known as the turner commission a set of trade-offs which allowed Uh, everybody to say, well, we haven't got everything that we want, but we've got a package which is significant enough that we all want to back it. So what's the package? The package essentially comes, again, it's an interesting example of interaction between uh, America and the UK. It is based on the idea of 401k default saving systems, the evidence which has been looked at here, which is basically retirement saving rates are much higher where you have a default saving system, which is basically an answer to the point that, you know, let's take that inertia and use it to our advantage. So we will set up a a national saving scheme, personal accounts, which everybody will be automatically enrolled into unless they're in a a company pension, which is equally as good or better. Uh, Employers will have to make a mandatory contribution into that as long as the individual stays in it. It will be run by the private sector but organized uh, effectively by the public sector. And we believe it's going to get up to 10 million people saving who who aren't saving today. And the trade unions had to accept that there would be raising the retirement age, employers had to accept that there would be a, a compulsory contribution for the first time, and we had to accept um, a significant reform of the state pension system so it would provide a more generous floor on which people could save.
0: Gene, that the path forward for a universal 401 k.
2: <laughs> well, as you know, uh, a few of us here
5: were involved when President Clinton uh, did a USA account, which was a very significant progressive saving account, and I've uh, tried to take the uh, tried to keep pushing that. Uh, I've used the phrase universal 401k. Um, I think what's interesting in our context is, what we've learned is kind of the interaction with how people look at it at social security. And I think what you're finding is that when you, in our political environment right now, when people talk about it in the social security context, it creates, I think, uh, distrust that it is somehow going to be a backdoor to privatization. And in that sense, I think it has more distrust with progressives. When, however, it's presented more as uh, people should have Social Security, which should be the guaranteed benefit, the non-risk-free part of your package. And then, over here, shouldn't everybody have a pension? And as you say, it's very much like it is here. I mean, we do have something that works wonderfully in our country. If you are lucky enough to have a universal... If you have a 401k at work, um, you know, you're a triple winner. You're a triple winner if you're high income. Your employer gives you a match. Uh, You you get it automatically taken out into account. And if you're in a higher bracket, you get, you know, 35% bracket, you get a 35% tax incentive. If you are one of the 40 or 50% who doesn't have a plan each year or the much higher percent as Karen would tell you, of single women, working women who don't have something, you're often a triple loser. You don't have an account at work, uh, uh, you don't get any match, and since you're in the 10 or 15 percent bracket, you get very, very little. So, you know, I have found that you can go to a very conservative audience and say, you know, shouldn't the people who are going to clean up this room afterwards have they have at least the same ability to save as you do? And I, so I think that our hope is by saying, let's have a universal 401k. Uh, I think this goes to a lot of what we were talking about, too. It's not just, it's both security and it's wealth building. Um, And I think if people see it that way as part of a larger retirement security package, uh, it could happen as part of a larger Social Security reform. But I think the key is to have it progressive uh, to turn around our upside down tax incentive system to make it cover everybody. So I think, I, I hope that the future for the next progressive president, whoever that is, uh, is to have a universal 401k automatic default with a government match uh, uh, that they get whether their employer does it does or not. And then I think you, you, you would start to have a more equal, uh, I mean, be pro growth. Uh, Eugene Sterley estimates that if, if people on the bottom just save $500 more each, you'd have our net savings rate go up 20 25%. Um, but it would also be, obviously, pro-equity. And it just, in my last note is just to say that we spend so much time talking about inequality. I think even yesterday in all of our day session, it was all income inequality. Um, unless you're talking about something like a universal 401k, you are completely ignoring the vast wealth inequality that exists between blacks and whites and between various different segments of our society.
0: Uh, I'm going to give uh, Karen and Bob a, a, a second to get in here, but uh, we're going to take a couple of questions from the media, if if you have any, uh, in just a second. But Karen, you wanted to jump in on this?
4: I just think this issue and the health care issue raises uh, the question of what we're going to ask uh, your employer to do and what the state's going to do as we move forward. You know, when when, as we discussed yesterday, when employers are global- uh, they're not necessarily wed here. Their interests are separate from their workers. It's just a very interesting question. Should the employer, you know, what some of these studies have said is the employer can at least be a good person to um, make you save on a regular basis to do the administration, but maybe they shouldn't be your health insurer, for example. And so that's, I think you see a lot of these health plans trying to grapple with that. The pension plans trying to deal with that, I think, on some of these Work-family issues, you can't get away from the fact that if you're going to control work hours, that's a mandate you have to put on employers. But you obviously want to keep, if you want investment in the U.S., it's a real balancing act to figure out what you're actually going to put on the employer before he goes overseas. But I think that's something we need a lot of clarity about. We can't just keep doing things the way we've done them in the past. I
1: think Mike come on a slightly different subject, John. Sure. I think James, James made a comment I, I never quite thought of it the same way, the way he said it. If you take Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he created a prism at looking at the functions and, and what government could do, and it, it relates both. It relates to growth, having an effective growth economy. It relates to how benefits of growth contribute one thing or another. And then over time, that changed. And as, as we said a moment ago, I, I think the biggest challenge for, 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 for progressives, maybe John, is not any of these individual policies, or maybe even all them put together in a way, but it's recapturing that prism because once you have a prism that looks at government as a constructive force, assuming it's efficient one thing or another, effective. Then you can go on from there to try to do the kind of things you need. As long as you're fighting the tremendous headwind of having government viewed the way it has been painted in the last some decades in this country, I think it's going to be very hard to really do what this country needs, both for growth and for some reasonable distribution of benefits of growth.
0: Of course, the prism, I think, of the world in today, from today's New York Times... Uh, headline, Arctic Melt Unnerves the Experts. Well, uh, I think that the experts they were referring to here were, were climatologists and scientists and the people on the IC, IPCC. But I wonder whether it's beginning to unnerve the financial experts uh, and whether you can uh, get sustainable growth without... Uh, without a, a completely new energy future in the country, I, I in, be- in the world. Really. Sure,
1: no, I became persuaded, and I was not environmentalist when I went to our administration. I thought it was kind of snail darters and things for uh, sort of an effete kind of character. And, and Gore persuaded me, and I, I think he's right, not on global warming, just more generally, that you're not going to have an effective uh, economy unless you also have effective environmental policy because. The, the ultimately, your environmental problems will undermine your economic growth. So the two have to come together, and obviously, global warming is the most important part of that, or I think it's probably the most important part of that.
0: You 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 live in a sustainable community, right?
2: Well, we have um, uh, <laughs> we we have a radical piece of legislation coming in, which again, John will know more about than I do, but which is setting uh, binding targets for carbon reductions of uh, well. Now planning to move towards 60% reductions by 2050, and the the goal there is rather than having micro interventions to change the overall system, so that people within that have incentives to change their behaviour. But I'll defer to my.
6: Well, let me just say one or two things about this. I mean, we've I missed a lot of the discussion earlier on, and so I apologise for that. I'm not quite sure, John, what what was raised there. But look, our sense is that this is the the big one. This is the biggest economic, social. Uh, and political challenges this generation faces by some considerable distance. Um, and just to put that in just a little bit of context, I mean, I know people think in England it just rains every winter and so on. It does rain quite a lot. Um, but we've, in the last 12 years, 11 of those years have set record summer temperatures. And by record, I mean, because we are who we are, we're talking since 1648, because we religiously every year kept an average summer temperature. We're, yeah, we are obsessed by the weather. That's really what that, that tells you. Um, but look, look, it's no coincidence, okay? We are causing climate change. There's a 90% probability now that it's man-made. It is what we're doing to our planet that eventually is going to kill us. So look, I think we better be serious about this. Now, there's a very big debate to be had about you know what is the right response and so on, and you know the, again there will be differences and so on uh, about the approach that that we should take. But our approach, as James has said, is very clear. We need enforceable targets. Uh, fundamentally, we need a, a proper price for carbon. We've got to find a way of shifting to low carbon technologies, renewables, nuclear, whatever. We've got to make that transition, and we've got to make it very quickly. Uh, if we don't, then I, obviously you know a lot of the rest of the debate we've had. Uh, it's going to be largely irrelevant. Um, We did a a very piece, uh, I think a hopefully useful piece of research about a year ago in the UK when Nick Stern produced his his economic analysis. I think the first really comprehensive one. The science is not 100%, of course, in terms of the economics here. But I think it's a very simple no-brainer for us. Look, I'm not an economist. The price of doing nothing here is five times higher than the price of actually doing something sensible now, and look you know at the end of the day every every dollar every pound counts, and we can only spend it once James mentioned uh the Turner commission uh we
0: had we had a dare turner run a commission for us on climate change, and there's some very valuable work there, so I recommend it to you uh, I am going to take one or two questions from the media if 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 there are any please okay,
6: excuse me. Excuse me. I wonder if you could just discuss a little bit the um, the implications of some of the globalization issues and the, with the movement of jobs and investment overseas for the corporate tax system. Somebody hit on it very briefly, but uh, any thoughts on how that needs to, what changes might be needed there?
1: On the corporate tax? Yeah. I can't say that I ever recollect. I may be wrong about this. I so don't hold me to it, but I don't. Certainly, as I hear people talk about where they're going to locate activity, what they're going to do. They talk about efficiencies and all kinds of other considerations through the quality of service. They're also the tremendous advantage of having activity here because uh, there are a lot of advantages of being near your colleagues, your competitors, one thing or another. I can't recollect anybody mentioning taxes, corporate taxes, as a significant factor in their decision. Now, I have heard people talk about if you're going to locate something abroad, then taking it like when Ireland had a favorable tax regime. But I, I don't think that, uh, I at least for one, don't think that American corporate tax rates, if that's your question, at current levels are a significant factor with respect to locational decisions.
0: I'm not saying they
1: never affect the decision, but I think on balance, uh, I don't think that they're a major fa- uh, a significant factor. And I think you, if you're going to do the kinds of things that a government has to do, if we're going to have an effective economy with respect to all the different things that we have to do, the revenue has to come from someplace. And I, I think that... Uh, I would not materially change corporate rate
0: u k perspective john corporate taxation
6: well we we want to keep our corporate taxes as low as as we possibly can because we are conscious just how competitive now the the global marketplace is, uh, and investors have real choices to make about this, and uh, you know we have been trying to systematically lower our our main rate of corporation tax um, in order to make sure that the u k remains a, a you know a very powerfully attractive place for people to invest and with some success so um, I'm not an expert on the UK, uh, on the US, um, you know, corporate taxation regime, so I don't really want to get drawn on that. But I, I would say that uh, you know, I think every country now has got to try and make sure it's got a vested interest in making sure its corporate tax rates are as competitive as possible. Yeah,
1: but I think you're John. You, you, you are. You're before also lowering individual tax rates. On the other hand, if government is going to do the things that I at least think government has got to do, if you're going to have a successful economy, you have to pay for it someplace, and it's not going to come from grants from the IMF. So. You got to find some. You got to, guy, find some way to pay for it. Jane,
5: can, can I? <laughs> I, I? think. You tried that, yeah. I know you did time <laughs> I think this is part of what will be a larger conversation in the United States going forward, which is, what does affect job location? Lowering the corporate tax rate in and of itself uh, does not directly affect as as much job location. I think we're we're going to enter a period. We we should be. Uh, we should be pro-job growth, we should be pro-business in our approach, but I think we also, when we look at the divergence happening between corporate profits and wages, I think for American policy they can't just take the approach that what's good for GM or good for Intel is good for US job location. And I think what's gonna, what you need in policymakers is to look for what is that nexus. Uh, a major CEO has uh, maybe a fiduciary duty to their, uh, to their to their shareholders to look for the most efficient supply chain they can. But a U.S. policymaker has a duty to their work to to their voters, uh, to their constituency to look at where that nexus is that affects. Uh, job creation and high wage and labor standards. And I think that opens you up to a larger and more textured conversation about, as Karen was saying, should we be taking some of the burden of healthcare off workers? What is the kind of infrastructure? What's the kind of education strategy? So I think it would be great to have that conversation. Where is the nexus for the multinational company in terms of that affects job location and job creation here, but I think just having it about corporate tax rates is just
1: taking a one one sliver of what really is a more comprehensive discussion. Good, public education system. good infrastructure, effective basic research, and a whole bunch of those other factors, I think have vastly more effect on where people locate business than, than a change in your corporate tax rate.
6: Great. Well, I, let me just sort of I don't enjoying understand. being the meat and the sandwich here, but um, <laughs> I, I think there's again. Let me my context. I hope that wasn't an inappropriate remark. By the way, um, look. Let me just sort of offer you one sort of insight from again from across the ocean. Um, Ireland has had one of the most sort of remarkable growths in of any of the EU economies in the last fifteen to twenty years, and. There are people who will argue the toss about exactly why that is, but there's very few economists in, in Europe, in the UK, who don't think that their corporate tax regime has played a very signal role in making Ireland a very attractive place for people to invest. So, look, I mean, it is obviously the case that there are other things that go into the, into the melting pot when decisions are made about where to invest. But I think we have to be really careful here that, um, you know, we, we don't uh, ignore the role that uh, corporate tax regimes can play in, in inward investment decisions. I think they're important.
0: Linda?
3: We, we in the last budget law in Italy, we uh, reduced corporate tax because uh, the system is very uh, international. is a is a single market, so taxation on uh, business has to compare with the uh, environment, and uh, you it's very difficult mm, to have a, a national. Uh, uh, policy about this issue. Uh, and so, um, we, we, uh, in Italy, we brought the taxation at the level of Germany, which is uh, the, the lower, uh, I think, uh, um, with UK. So we have to uh, capture capital and investment. Uh, and uh, and it's a, this is the uh, crucial point for the growth.
0: Uh, I would ask you to join me in thanking this fabulous panel. Uh, I think we've all learned from each other. Hopefully we can go back and uh, take some of those lessons and actually get them implemented and enacted into law so that we can make our societies better. Thank you very much for being here.